What is up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Rewired Soul podcast. It's your host, Chris. And today, my guest is Carl Bergstrom. All right. So we're going to be talking about his fantastic book that he co-authored called Calling Bullshit. Okay. So I absolutely love this book so, so, so much. And I'm so glad that he was able to come on because Calling Bullshit is all about all of kind of the bad science that we encounter on a daily basis, right? It's not just science like, you know, the COVID vaccine or, you know, things like that, but just all over the place because we're constantly being bombarded with, oh, this new scientific study says this and this new research says that. And we have data and statistics thrown at us all the time. And in this book, Calling Bullshit, they talk about all the different ways that, you know, this research can kind of be biased or, you know, done poorly (laughs) and how mistakes can happen and why we need to be just a little bit more skeptical. So this is actually a course that uh, Carl teaches and they've put it together in this book. So I get to ask him, you know, about all these different things. We get to talk about the COVID vaccine, some of the information around alternatives to the vaccine, like ivermectin and what the research actually says, and how we can all do a little bit better when we come across this data, so we can make better decisions in our everyday lives. But, but one of the most important questions that I asked Carl is about polls. All right. So those of you who know me, I am so skeptical of polling data. And I'm able to talk with Carl about this because they discuss polls a little bit in the book. But I'm able to ask him if we can even rely on any of the polling data that we hear or if it's all just a bunch of nonsense. So I really enjoyed this conversation. Make sure you head down to the description. And the book is out. It's been out for a while. I recently read it for a second time. So head down to the description. Make sure uh, you follow Carl over on Twitter. I've also uh, added his co-author down there, Jevin West. So you can follow both of them on Twitter. And most importantly, make sure you grab a copy of Calling Bullshit. It was one of the most important things that I, I just, I really wish that more average people knew how to look at science a little bit more skeptically. So make sure you grab a copy of the book. And before we get started, if you're new, make sure that you are following or subscribe to the podcast or whatever platform you're listening on. And down in the description, you also find links to my social media. So make sure you're following me at The Rewired Soul over on Instagram and Twitter. Not only do we have a bunch of upcoming episodes that you don't want to miss, but I also, I write quite a bit. I'm about to start a new project too, but all that you'll find on social media. But most importantly, I love chatting with all of you. I love asking you what authors you want to see on here. I love getting book recommendations from all of you. So make sure you're following me on Instagram and Twitter at The Rewired Soul, all right? But anyways, without further ado, here's my conversation with Carl Bergstrom about his book that he co-authored with Jevin West calling Bullshit. Right. Hello, Carl. Thanks so much for joining me today. Yeah, it's great to be here. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. I'm glad we we're finally able to link up. And yeah, we're going to be talking about one of my favorite books that you and Jevin West wrote called Calling Bullshit. So before we dive into the book, for those who have yet to meet you from my audience, can you kind of give a little background, uh, what you do, what you research, all that kind of good stuff? Oh, yeah, sure. So I'm a professor in the Department of Biology at the University of Washington, and I have a background in um, evolutionary biology, studying how animals communicate, why they lie to each other, um, and a background working in uh, epidemiology, in infectious Mm. epidemiology, and looking at how information spreads. We're looking at how uh, diseases spread across networks, which was a natural lead-in to start thinking about how information and misinformation spread across Mm -hmm. networks. And so those sort of interests in in animal communication, inception, and things like that came together with the interest in how things move across networks. And I found myself spending a lot of time thinking about our information environment. That's kind of my background in a nutshell. Yeah. And, and yeah, I, I have, you know, over the years just seen how important you know, learning this stuff is, and I love, I love in the book too, how you talk about, you know, this is something that humans and animals were designed to do and there's different, you know, reasons for based on survival. But what, what kind of uh, inspired the book? Because you talk about how this, this, some of the things that we're going to dive into, you talk, you teach your students and everything like that. Was there anything like this book came out a couple of years ago? Was there anything specific that happened where you're like, 
hey, we got to write a book and get this out to the public and, and talk about this. Yeah. So the book actually emerged out of a class that we started teaching. Mm. And uh, so, but I, but so the, the motivation for the class was um, the, maybe in the uh, 2014 or so, uh, my co author, Jevin West, uh, was designing the uh, data science curriculum for the University of Washington. Um, and uh, he just, and he was going to start teaching a class on big data. Mm. And I still remember very well, I was talking to him on the phone, I was in a hotel room. Uh, in DC or something, talking to him on the phone about this. And he, and he said, yeah, I'm going to be teaching this class on big data. And I said, well, oh hell, if you do that, I'm going to have to start teaching a class calling bullshit on big data. Yeah. And, uh, and he started laughing and, and he said, Hey, I'd teach that with you. And I'm like, serious. Cause I mean, my, my feeling at the time was that it was badly overhyped yeah. and he was, you know, to some extent, much more on the hype train than I was. And, but we've been good friends. We worked together for a long time. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and so, so I thought we, you know, Hey, we could do this. And so we started taking notes about like what would go into a class calling bullshit on big mm -hmm. data. And, and, uh, it very quickly became clear to us that it wasn't fair to target just big data. We needed to target, uh, yeah. all kinds of misuse of numbers and statistics and, and, uh, and, uh, figures and that kind of thing. And so, um, so, uh, we started putting that together and, um, then, um, eventually um, because of various logistical complications, it's very hard to teach, to co-teach classes at the University of Washington. Mm. If you're in different colleges, he's in the college, the information school, I'm in the college of arts and sciences. And so we weren't sure we were going to be allowed to actually do this. So we said, well, let's, let's write, let's create the entire class. Let's write all of the, you know, the articles that we would have the students read and let's put a syllabus and all of this stuff and, and put it up there online and maybe, um, you know, people can use it for self-study or something like mm -hmm. that. And we put it up and it touched a nerve and people were really, really interested in, in, you know, having the notion of a class on bullshit and in particular a class on the way that numbers and statistics and big data are used to bullshit. So that sort of took off. It got an enormous amount of media coverage and essentially backed the university into a corner and, and forced them to, to let us teach it. Yeah. Um, so we've been teaching it ever since we teach it uh, every fall to 180 students, um, that come from all across the university. Uh, so it's not just, uh, you know, tech students or, mm. or scientists or something. We've got, um, 40 different majors in the class, uh, students in the arts and in the humanities and then, um, in engineering and all kinds of disciplines. Mm. So, um, we love teaching the course, have a lot of fun with it, uh, but we can only reach 180 students a year. And so we thought, well, the best way to reach more people would be to, um, would be to write a book around the themes of the course. Yeah. Yeah. And. So I, I think you're perfect to ask uh, about this too, because something I'm always curious about, and since you're, you know, you're teaching groups of students and, you know, uh, people are reading the book and everything. So I'm always curious because people got excited about your class and, you know, they're like, Hey, this is a pretty cool topic. I'm always wondering if people are, if, you know, from what you've seen, are people more just naturally trusting or skeptical and does it depend on the context right because there's like uh you know i've been reading about like truth default theory and everything like that but i don't know like some i i always question it because me i've always been pretty skeptical like whenever somebody tells me something my immediate instinct is like all right give me some evidence in the larger context and books like yours teach me how to kind of snip that stuff out a little bit better. So, right. what, so what do you, what do you see as the, I think so much of it depends on where the information comes from. Mm. And I think that's some of the reason why social media is causing a lot of problems right now. So, uh, you know, if we see, we know that if you hear, you know, information from, uh, advertisement, you should be skeptical. We know that if a politician is like trying to get elected and tells you something, we should be skeptical. Um, we're less used to being skeptical when people that we consider part of our social networks mm. tell us things because, and this comes back to some of the animal communication stuff I've thought about, because there's this, there are these, uh, there we're involved in these sort of sort of closer relationships where reputation comes into place and so forth. Mm -hmm. And, uh, so we, we we're quicker to trust information that comes from people that we consider part of our close social environment. And then what happens with social media, of course, is that, uh, that, that we expand that circle um, online to, you know, to mm -hmm. people that we don't know, but also we are getting all this information from, you know, uncle, uncle John, who's, uh, you know, got whatever crazy ideas about, um, you know, conspiracy theories that he's into or whatever. Um, and as, as we move toward a social media world where we're getting our news and information from there, 
instead of having a producer um, at a network or uh, or an editor at a good newspaper deciding what I see, it is crazy Uncle John who's pretty sure that yeah. you know there that contrails are uh, you know part of a CIA plot, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And and I think that and then and so I think that's kind of caught that's kind of caught us off guard a little bit um, in terms of uh, leaving us in a position where we're getting misinformation from people that we historically would have had more reason to trust. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, right, right now, especially because they're doing like the Facebook hearings, they have that whistleblower yeah. and everything like that. And I'm always, I'm always curious because, you know, like there's so much talk about regulation and stopping the spread of misinformation. And I think mm-hmm. like when you really like get into the nuances of it and like what's true, what's not, especially when it comes to science and how it's regularly updating, I, I, I personally don't know if I would want Facebook, like somebody who doesn't know about, you know, viruses and everything and like how all this stuff works, if I want them to determine that. But, you know, clearly misinformation is an issue because the family members, the people we do trust are spreading yeah. that. So have you thought, like, do you think there's any kind of realistic regulations or anything we could do to yeah, slow, I mean, this, slow it down? This is something we're thinking about a ton and worrying about a ton. So Jevin Weston uh, 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 founded this uh, center at the University of Washington, the Center for the Informed Public that mm. I've been heavily involved in and uh, for an informed public. And the, the idea of the center is actually to think about how to combat the spread of misinformation and how to empower people um, to access good information um, around the world. And so one of the things that we're trying to do with with that center is to think about what can be done to deal with the enormous problem of misinformation on social media. I'm fairly skeptical of, you know, having uh, social media companies or anybody else come in and sort of censor out the bad information. Mm-hmm. I think that that's a... Um, it's sort of, you know, it's like trying to hold back a, a, a river with your hands. I mean, it's just, yeah. you're not going to be able to do that. So um, I think we have to think about more structural changes. So what mm-hmm. is it about social media that causes misinformation to spread so effectively? Mm. And what kinds of structural changes to the way that social media operates might, well, you know, would, would help. So for example, um, you know, one very little thing that, that some companies are doing, but, uh, but, you know, could be a minor band-aid is the sorts of nudges that you get on Twitter. You'll try to tweet something. You'll say, do you want to read the article first? Yeah. Um, and uh, so yeah, that could help a little bit. Um, but I mean, more fundamentally, I think just sort of thinking about what's different about the way that social media allows the spread of information from the way that traditional face-to-face, uh, human networks allow the spread of information. And mm. so, you know, one of the things that happens there is, is that people, I mean, there's sort of a few things. There's scale, right? I mean, so you have you have a much much larger network of you know basically 2.5 billion people in the world connected on uh, by social media all to one another, and so things can spread very wide and far in a way that they didn't do uh, nearly as quickly or 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 to such a great degree in um, you know in face to face interactions. You have certain people who are enormous influencers. Um, you know, somebody can uh, can can uh, you know some you know. Uh, entertainers or other people may have followings of, you know, 50, Mm -hmm. 70 million individuals, and then they can send out, say, vaccine misinformation or something like that. And it gets broadcast at a scale that, that nobody could really do, um, you know, prior to social media, because you didn't have that very long tail Mm -hmm. of influencers that we did. So thinking about that, um, the, there's the notion that uh, information can be spread, uh, with this very great fidelity. So if I, you know, if I, if my, if my, you know, uh, uncle uh, is, is, you know, anti-vax and he tells me this argument about why, you know, I should be skeptical of the vaccine. And then I try to tell you it, and then I kind of have forgotten some of the points and I can't mm-hmm. remember, and I don't make it do a very good job of it. And you try to tell a friend and like by about three steps, like the, 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 ar- the argument is completely decayed if we're telling each other face to face, but with social media, if I, if he tweets it and I retweet it and you retweet it and retweet it, it just maintains its fidelity all the way through. Mm-hmm. And so, um, so that's kind of another, you know, structural change. So maybe you could think about. Um, you know, and, and then, and then there's all the roles of the algorithms in terms of determining what, what information we see. So you can think about whether, you know, if it really is a social network, uh, you know, uh, 
maybe social networks should be limited to smaller groups of people. You know, WhatsApp mm-hmm. is experimenting with, you know, restricting the number of people to which you can send messages in a, in a message group or whatever. I'm not a WhatsApp user, so I'm not an expert yeah. there. Um, the, the, uh, you know, you might have uh, restrictions on, on how many times something can be forwarded. Um, mm-hmm. So, but thinking about basically what, what is different about social media from the real world that we're used to and whether those things contribute to the problems that we see. And then asking whether we can envision a type of social media that had most of the benefits that we're enjoying without some of the enormous costs. Yeah. yeah. So I don't have answers to what they should be, but that's the, that's the framework <laughs> we're thinking in. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I, I'm, I've been a content creator for a while. Like, you know, before the podcast, I was mainly on YouTube, but I also come from like a digital marketing background and, mm-hmm. you know, so I, I, you know, I know how these search engines work and the social right, media right, aspects right. and, you know, it's something I'm thinking about. And, and like you said, it's like trying to hold back this, this current, it's like massive and, yeah. you know, something I, I hope and what I just try to do with my son since he's 12 and I'm hoping mm-hmm. the next generation's a little bit better. Like I just try to teach him like about these things at a younger age. Cause you know, yes. people are going to college and having to get a specific course for this stuff. Cause we're not, we're not really teaching it, but that's why I love books like yours. And I think, I think one of the most important topics, and I learned a ton about this from your book is, you know, susceptibility in science, right? Yes. Right. Mm-hmm. And you know, um, you, you, you cover all the different, like, issues that can happen, whether it's, uh, you know, P hacking or biases and everything. Mm-hmm. But what do you think that the core issue is? Because I'm always thinking about like incentives, right? Do you think? Do you <laughs> I was going like, to use exactly that uh, word to yeah. answer your question. Do you think it's, do you think, uh, how are incentives in the scientific community a problem? And do you have any solutions you've been thinking about for that issue? Yeah. So, I mean, I could, you know, I, I'm glad we're thinking exactly alike. I was, <laughs> I was saying, I was going to say, I was going to say, oh, I'm going to answer that question with the word incentives. He's not going to expect that. But then you actually were <laughs> exactly expect it. So, so yeah, the problem is the incentives, right? Is that, you know, just think about it. I mean, science is, um, you know, not the sort of one true path to understanding of uh, the physical universe. It is a set of rules and institutions and norms that are jury rigged over the evolved psychology of our particular species of ape to help us, you know, work together collaboratively to generate a understanding of the material world and it works remarkably well and this is why you and i are talking right now mm-hmm. very far distance over this remarkable technology and and uh, you know neither of us is dead because we developed a vaccine that uh, that could that could stop a, a disease that had never been in humans uh, you know in in, 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 a, in a year's time and mm-hmm. just, we can do amazing things but that said um you know there are vulnerabilities in the way that science is structured um, and a lot of that has to do with the fact that uh, perverse incentives come into play. I mean, people uh, who do science are just as human as anybody else. They're not, you know, just these, you know, like total nerds, totally only seeking the, you know, the scientific truth. But there are people that are competing for status and for mm-hmm. jobs and for money and for all the other things that we are all worrying about. Normally, it's just that they're playing within the rules of a game that's set up by the institutions and norms around science. And so, um, so you have to look at, well, what are they, this is, this is actually an error kind of, this is what I expected to be doing for the last couple of years. Mm. Um, then instead ended up doing COVID work because that my background's in epidemiology, but, but, you know, my research was really moving into understanding, um, trying to understand how science works and in particular, how the institutions of science create incentives for people to pursue certain research and publication strategies and how that affects what we end up learning or not learning about the world and what we believe that's true and what we believe that's false and, and, and so forth. So, um, so, you know, the problems, uh, arise, I think largely because scientists are rewarded for publishing, um, at a high rate and they're rewarded for publishing surprising findings that are statistically significant according to the rules that we've decided on what, what makes a statistically significant finding under, yeah. you know, various kinds of norms. And when those rules came up, they may have, you know, when they, when, when that sort of system emerged, that may have been quite a reasonable way to go about things because given the kinds of scientific questions people were asking, um, but they didn't emerge in sort of a big data world where so much of the work is done by doing complex statistical analysis on these massive data sets with, um, with, with dozens or hundreds or thousands of variables. Mm -hmm. Um, and so what, you know, one of the kind of thing that can happen is that people can go in and they can find surprising results by kind of dredging those 
data um, for interesting patterns. And then those results don't tend to hold up very well. And that gives rise to the whole replication crisis mm -hmm. that a lot of fields are, are suffering from in which a lot of scientific results, even published in very, very good journals, turn out not to replicate when, mm -hmm. when studied later. Um, another kind of incentive thing, right, is that uh, you don't get famous by replicating somebody else's work or by showing that somebody else's work doesn't replicate. You get famous by being the one that comes up with these new creative ideas, discovering new phenomena, that sort of thing. So there's in some sense, there's much too little effort going into replicating results, um, verifying results, uh, or, you know, disconfirming results that turn mm -hmm. out to be wrong and much too much effort going into coming up with the next new surprising thing that nobody else was clever enough to think about. And, um, and so, you know, there, there are these kinds of problems in terms of where, where are the incentives to lie for individual scientific researchers trying to make a name for themselves, trying to make a career, mm -hmm. um, and, uh, and so on. And, and so some of the things that we need to do is, is sort of understand how those problems with incentives are leading to suboptimal allocation of research effort and to think about what kinds of different incentives would make, um, would Im improve the, the allocation of research effort, if you will. I mean, there's, it's a, it's a very complicated, it's a big complicated system. Yeah. There's a lot of pieces. So I don't want to, you know, I, I, I could blather about <laughs> this for an hour and I want to try not to do that. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, I mean, there, there are a bunch of things that people are trying to do just to give you one example of like solution, a solution that's out there. You know, there's something called the file drawer effect, um, where people, if they, if they do an experiment and it, and it works, you know, maybe you're trying to, you're trying a new treatment. And if the treatment works, then you get excited. You publish the paper. Uh, if the treatment doesn't work, you're saying like, oh, well, damn it, that didn't work. Um, no journal is going to be very interested in that because yeah. it's not going to get them readers. Readers don't like to read about stuff that doesn't work. Um, so I'm probably not going to publish this anyway. So you just stick it in a file drawer and forget about it. Mm -hmm. And then you, and, and so what ends up happening is this creates this enormous publication bias in terms of what gets published. Yeah. The stuff that works gets published. The stuff that doesn't, doesn't. Some of the stuff that worked just got wor worked by chance. Mm -hmm. Um, and there may have been three other people that tried it and it didn't work, but they didn't publish it. And so we, so we don't see all the failures when mm -hmm. we look at the scientific literature. So one, one thing people are trying to do to get, and and so this can give us a very misleading picture of what works and what doesn't. And so one thing people are trying to do is, is they're, uh, they're setting up a, a publication model in which you, um, submit not the final write-up of the experiments that are done, but you submit a proposal to do the experiments to the journal mm. the journal reviews the proposal to do the experiments and says okay what you know blind to what happens because in fact you haven't done the experiments yet and then mm. they say okay we'll publish this or we won't um and then you go and do the experiments and then they've already pre-committed to publish so if you do it and it doesn't work instead of them saying oh we won't publish that it didn't work they they go ahead mm -hmm. and stick to their commitment and publish it and, and you know so things like this may may help deal with problems like this file drawer effect and, and allow the scientific literature to better represent the set of experiments that were actually done. So these are the yeah. kinds of models that people are thinking about. Yeah, it's, you know, and I, I, I think, you know, one of the, one of the main things I think about, I'm thinking about in all aspects of just human life is like the status, right? Like you, you make this yeah. new finding and it's like the status can like just blind you, right? Like, oh, right. I'm going to be in the history books. And then when I think right. about that, I'm like, yeah, this can get complex because when you're looking at the incentives, you know, how is somebody going to gain status from that? Why are they going to want to do that? Why are, you know, especially with these, these results that don't show anything or they were failed or, yeah, right, you know, right. and all that. But, you know, the, one of the reasons I, I do this podcast and I read so many books, like I'm not, you know, uh, like the smartest guy in the, in the world, but I try to learn, but I try to bridge that gap with people. Right. So when I read mm -hmm. a book like yours, I'm like, how, how can the average person kind of take this? And you have so many tools, but with so many complexities in the science community. Right. And, mm -hmm. you know, screwed up and said, it's like, I'll, I'll give you this example. I have access to like scientific journals, right? I can right. get through, I, you know, I can do it through a uh, university and just yeah. find them, you know? And even me, when I go in there, I'm like, okay, how, how many other studies have cited this, right? You yeah, know, right. what are the results? And I, I do that. That takes me some time and sure. it's just because I actually care. So anyways, the average person, the average person, right? What can they do when they come across one of these things? Like, 
that's that's realistic, you know, when because then it filters through like a media outlet. You talk about that a lot in there too, where they're like, well, right. you know, chocolate will save the life or whatever it is. Yeah, you know? right, right. So what what do you what what's the best thing the average person can do to kind of recognize these things? I mean, a couple of things, I guess. Um one thing is, you know, for something like COVID, and so this is something I was asked a lot, um, or have been asked a lot, and continue to be asked a lot, is what can the average person do to keep up with what's going on in COVID? And here's a place where I think uh, really high quality uh, reporting is very, very important. And so we're not talking about somebody who was in the, uh, who was, you know, on the, on the uh, society desk at, uh, at a, at a, um, you know, USA Today style paper. We're talking about uh, someone who's a professional disease reporter who's mm. been doing this for a long time. Someone like uh, Kai Cooperschmidt or Helen Branswell. Um, who knows everybody in the field, who has a really good background in what's going on and is able, and this is the key thing, is able to put things into context for, the, for her readers mm -hmm. or for his readers. Um, and so I think, you know, learning what sources are the most valuable is extremely important. And even figuring that out isn't that easy, though I think if you kind of read, um, you, you know, you can kind of see who knows what's going on and who doesn't. Mm -hmm. um, but, uh, but I think finding high quality reporting from trusted sources that actually specialize in the area that they're reporting mm -hmm. on is, is a sort of critically important way to sort through that information. There's, there's very little way to, if you're trying to understand something like COVID where there are, um, you know, a thousand papers being published every day and you know, even the professionals working in this area can't really keep up with the literature, mm. um, you need something like that. It's a little bit different if you're trying to understand, you know, your, your pet has a rare disease and, and, and you look it up and there are three papers that have been published on it ever. And uh, mm -hmm. what should you make of that? Um, that's a little bit, that's sort of a, a different situation. And, uh, you know, there it's also complicated. I mean, this is for some reason, what, to some extent why we do trust our vets instead of prescribing because they have, they have a little bit more training for how to make sense of that. Um, but you can do the sort of thing you do, which is kind of, uh, lateral reading, which is try to figure out, well, what journal is this published in? Is this a reputable journal that yeah. it's in? Um, who are these people? Are these people that, uh, that are widely respected? Uh, uh, these authors who wrote this paper, are they widely respected individuals? Are they, um, you mm -hmm. know, are they someone who's never even written a paper about animal medicine before, but, uh, just, you know, wrote this one-off paper, yeah. um, you know, and that kind of thing. So you, so you can also look into that, which will give you some sense of how seriously to take a result, but it's just fundamentally very, very hard. Yeah. And I think it's, you know, that's some of the challenge of dealing with information in an internet world, we've got enormous amounts of information and the process of like figuring out how to appropriately filter that mm -hmm. is a huge part of the challenge instead of the big challenge being acquiring it in the first place. Yeah. And, and you know, I, I'm always wondering about, you know, what social media can do as well. And, and when you're talking about this, like there aren't certain, you know, uh, science journalists and people reporting on this and they're good at communicating and breaking it down. And I'm wondering uh, if you've, about this or if you see any possible issues if like a facebook or a twitter or even a google had like a vetted list right of like trusted yeah. sources like could they do something like that where you had to go through a process or even if it was voted on by people like yourself is like yeah i vouch for this person more often than not they're doing accurate reporting yeah, like, right right do you see any issues like if if a regulation was tossed in there if there was kind of something like that where it, it highlighted it you know, the only thing I could see it affecting is like, you know, Facebook's bottom line is people, <laughs> people are more likely to, you know, like to share the sensationalized, ridiculous results. Yeah, right. So, um, well, I suppose, you know, the, the, the problem is always balancing the, I mean, so any plan like that is going to tend to weight the prevailing wisdom mm. um, among experts heavily and discount um contrarian views mm. and um so in general you know for something like covid we would have done quite well to pay a lot of attention to the experts who said indeed this is going to be a bad disease and a lot of people are going to get it and indeed the vaccine works and discount the contrarians who said oh you know it's not as bad as the flu and uh and the vaccine doesn't work and things like that but you know, sooner or later, the, the, the contrarians will be right on something. And, yeah. um, and so what do you, 
you don't want to censor that conversation out of the discussion. So I don't quite know what to do about that. It's uh, um, one thing you could do is say, well, you say, well, you know, this is not a guarantee of truth. This is just, uh, you know, we've, we've, we were, we're, this is, this is what we think the experts think. And mm. uh, so, so it becomes not a stamp of right or wrong, but a stamp of whether this is conventional wisdom among the experts or not. So, yeah. so I'll vouch for, um, for these various people as, as being people that are widely respected in the expert community. Um, and then, pe and then, you know, so you could do something like that, but you know, I, I, you know, every, and then this, so, so there's this issue of, you know, well, sometimes the, 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 the conventional wisdom turns out to be wrong. And then the other issue is, um, you know, I always worry about possibility of misuse of these, yeah. of these sorts of things. Right. I mean, uh, you know, you get to Google or Facebook or something like that, and they're, you know, sort of as powerful as a lot of governments and they've got their own private interests and, mm -hmm. and sort of who, who, you know, keeps them honest. Yeah. And, you know, um, like I, I, yeah, I, I wonder about that too. Like who's, who's checking the checkers and everything. And you gotta hope yeah, right, somebody, right, right. somebody never changes their moral compass or anything like that. But, you know, when I, when I look at this and, you know, I think a lot about the experts because I, there's, there's a camp of people who argue that we don't have, we don't teach enough scientific literacy or even, yeah. uh, mm -hmm. you know, uh, literacy when it comes to reading journalism and all that. So yeah. there's that one about literacy, but from, from what you've seen during COVID, mm -hmm. do you think that there's also an issue with transparency, right? Because I, I feel like, you know, it's, it's not intuitive for people that just naturally understand that science changes and evolves because some people try to use it as an aha moment, like, uh -huh. yeah. but it's like, no, we just, we, we gave you, you know, our opinion based on the current data, that data's changed. Here's the new information. And our but, opinion changed it. But we do have issues where pe public figures have given wrong information. Right. So do you, have you, have you seen that? Do you think like public, like, you know, uh, politicians or experts, you know, being the voice, like, like Fauci or anything like do you think there's any issues there where they don't like trust people enough to make the right decision? So they hold information back or, you know, like what, how, how have you seen that during COVID? I mean, you want to be very careful about that. So the, uh, the CDC, uh, last updated their pandemic manual, I believe in 2014, and there's a whole chapter in there about public communication uh -huh. and it's very, very interesting. And they say, you know, a few things they say, you know, first of all, when you're doing public communication in a pandemic, you want to have um, the people that are speaking to the public need to be scientists, not politicians. Um, and then they also say you want to be, they also stress the importance of transparency. And so you mm -hmm. want to, um, you don't want to withhold information. You want to be transparent about, um, about both what the risks are. So instead of like, oh, we're not going to say this now because it might scare people. You just says, you know, no, just, just say it. You know, people yeah. need to know that they're getting the truth from you. Um, or you're not going to say this because people might not be scared enough. Same thing. No, just say it. People need to know they're getting the truth from you. Um, and then, uh, um, and, and then also to be very transparent about the uncertainties. Mm -hmm. And this is one of the things that's hardest to do in public communication is mm. to communicate accurately about risk because we don't think well about risk. It's just not something we're very good at, 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 at taking into account and to communicating about and to, and to really in, intuiting what different kinds of, you know, what, what is it, what does it mean that, uh, you know, the scientists think that there's a 10% probability that this is, you know, got an infection fatality rate over mm -hmm. 1% and a 50% probability that it's over a, a half a percent. And like, we don't know how to interpret that when you, if you hear that on the radio, it's like, well, I don't know what the hell that yeah. means. Like, and, uh, even if you do kind of know what the words mean to like actually understand it in, you know, intuitively is very, very hard. Um, so, you know, risk communication is a, is a real challenge, something we don't really have worked out. The thing that's most interestingly, so, I mean, I'm, I'm agreeing with you, you know, that, that, that those, you know, the transparency is, is critical. Having scientists, not politicians speaking is critical. And that's right there in that manual, which is really interesting. What's not there in the manual is a, any kind of, uh, discussion about uh, what happens in a social media world where mm -hmm. you have organized disinformation, yeah. uh, being purveyed. And so there's. There's absolutely nothing about what do you do if you have you know, agitators either from, uh, um, you know, hostile foreign governments mm. or from uh, various other vested interests that are trying to mislead. 
and you're in a social media context. I think people, you know, for this pandemic, uh, had no idea what to do about that. We were caught by surprise by that. I personally, you know, I was involved in, in developing, um, pan pandemic flu plans in the 20 aughts and, um, you know, we, we, there were a lot of political disagreements about what these should look like and so forth, but we all were operating at the time under the assumption that if, you know, the big one hit, like it did, um, at the start of 2020, mm -hmm. that, uh, once that happened, everyone would be on the same page and we'd all pull together. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> we didn't realize that, you know, a large fraction of the country, including the white house at the time was going to deny that it even existed. Yeah. And, uh, and, and so, um, we need to, you know, this is something that that people are working hard, trying to figure out what do we do next time around? How do we address these sorts of issues? What do you do about a well-organized, well-funded anti-vax movement? Um, yeah. All of those kinds of questions. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. It's really interesting too, because there's so many, there's so many people who are just researching this stuff, uh, you know, specifically about misinformation, not just spreading, but the psychology behind it and right. why people are believing it. But, you know, uh, since you were just talking about risk, right. And we suck at assessing risk and, and yeah, like it's, you know, it's difficult for us to grasp when numbers are just thrown at us. Like, I think a good example is I'm listening to the audiobook of your book yes. and there's like graphs and oh, everything. Yeah. So I'll have to go back and check the PDF oh, yeah, yeah. and all that. But like one, one, risk that I don't feel is too complex is like vaccinated versus not vaccinated or, or these alternative treatments, uh, about yep. like ivermectin, right? Like if you look at the numbers, we just crossed 700,000 deaths in the United yep. States alone. Right. And how many people have we heard die from the vaccine? You know, there was like, right. there was a, the, the very small portion of people, I think it was less than a dozen from, uh, with blood clotting and versus 700,000. But there's still yeah, people yeah. who are definitely afraid of that. Like that, yeah. that doesn't seem like a complex risk assessment. You know what I mean? So right. do you, mm -hmm. do you see just like, you know, whether it's polarization or misinformation or what is it like, why, why do you think it's so hard for people to grasp that? It seems like such a simple risk assessment. It's really complicated. Um, vaccines are really complicated in <laughs> general. I think, I think they evoke a lot of really deep feelings that we have about bodily autonomy mm. and about, um, contagion and things like this. There's a, there's an excellent book called, um, on immunity that, that tries to, uh, that tries to get in, in a sympathetic way, uh, you know, understand the psychology that, that leads people to be so fearful of mm -hmm. vaccines and things like that. Uh, while at the same time being very, you know, straightforward about what the science actually is. Um, and I learned a lot from reading that, you know, and, and it did make me feel like, uh, you know, vaccination is almost kind of a special case in terms mm -hmm. of the way that it evokes certain feelings. Um, and, uh, you know, we're, there, there are things that we're very scared of as well. Like with, if you think about the act, the, the anti-vax, uh, you know, tropes, um, uh, we're, we worry tremendously about harm to our children. Right. And that sort of sets off something mm -hmm. that, uh, uh, that, that induces like this level of extreme caution. Um, and, uh, and so, you know, these, these tropes like, um, you know, the vaccine in some way harms children, I think is, are, are particularly, um, particularly strong. I, it's a little bit harder for me to understand why, um, you know, uh, people are afraid to take a, a vaccine that, uh, you know, f like 50 year old guy like myself is afraid to take a vaccine that, uh, that's been, that's, you know, where we've given out a billion shots, mm -hmm. um, more than that. Uh, and, uh, but it's, you know, would was like, Bob, I'll just, I will get those monoclonal antibodies for sure. If I need it, you know, yeah. it's like, well, those are like every bit as newly developed and, uh, yeah. you know, it's like, there's so like what it is about there's something in the psychology of, of like what a vaccine is as opposed to a treatment that, that makes people afraid. And so I yeah. do think vaccines are kind of a special thing when it comes to risk assessment. And I, you know, I'm, I'm not an expert on this. I keep trying to learn and understand it. Yeah. I, well, I, I, yeah, there. Def, definitely keep me posted because yeah, I think about it yeah. a lot too. And I don't know if it's just some idea of like a needle penetrating the skin and, you know, and I mean, all that's that. certainly part of it. That's, that's absolutely part of it. Well, you know, with the monoclonal antibody infusion, you've got the same thing. 
Yeah, really. Yeah, because, uh, you know, the thing, you know, I've, I've said this a couple of times on Twitter too. Like, I just think about all the stuff we put in our bodies without questioning it, just orally, right? Just right. things that we, we drink, that we eat, and don't even think twice about it. But for some reason, if something's puncturing your skin. Yeah, I mean, definitely that is that is a really important piece, and and that does and and, uh, and that does that is a heavy theme in this book on on immunity. It's like the importance of that, like that uh, our skin is a barrier against the yeah. world, and and the idea of and and this notion of bodily autonomy and putting something, you know, we're used to. I mean, I don't know. I mean, like if you know, from a topological standpoint, we're all donuts, right? I mean, we're just putting, you know, <laughs> the food we eat, we're just putting it through the middle of the donut, but uh, like injecting something into the inside of the donut uh, is yeah, a different filling, is, is, yeah. is a different story, right? So we're kind of used to eating all kinds of crap, and we don't really think about the fact <laughs> that it's getting absorbed in. But injecting it through is really a yeah, a, yeah, yeah. There's less like thinking about that, you know, the way it like you know goes into our system and everything. You know, I, I always think about my friend; she has more tattoos than you can imagine, just like sleeves yeah. and everything. Uh -huh. Definitely afraid of like getting her blood drawn or like, you know, remarkable. You know? Yeah. So, so wow. that's why I think a lot about that skin barrier. Cause she's fine. If it's just on the surface and not, you know, going right. through and I'm right. Like, yeah. Really I, I do think there's something really psychologically important about that. And I, and I don't understand it. And I would recommend if you haven't read the book, check out the book. It's, yeah. I, uh, I just wrote it down in my notes. I, I, I know you're reading a book every day. So I figure that's a, <laughs> you're someone I can write you. I can read you know, recommend a book too, and you'll have it done by next week. Yeah. So. Yeah. No, it definitely sounds interesting. And, you know, uh, so one of, one of the things I want to ask you about you, the other day you tweeted, I'm not sure if you remember, you probably do. It was from the BBC, right? And they talked mm -hmm. about the ivermectin, like bad studies around this miracle drug, right? Because mm -hmm. there was a lot of like information like Joe Rogan got in. They're like, oh, you got a horse dewormer. But they, they have like a medication, like human version of ivermectin, right? Mm -hmm. But yeah, I they think do. that article that you talk about, it goes through all of the issues with the studies. Yes. Right. And like, I think it was almost like, just like you cover all these different issues in your book, like bad sample sizes or just not being peer reviewed and stuff. Can you kind of explain just briefly, like where we're at with ivermectin as an alternative? Is it prevention? Is it treating it? What was, what was wrong with the studies? Like, do you think there's hope down the line? Like where are we at with that for everybody. Yeah, I haven't gone it. into as much detail with ivermectin as some other things. So I'm not an absolute expert. Mm -hmm. Um, what, you know, what I have close colleagues who have gone and done deep dives into this, um, the studies that have been done that support ivermectin have been remarkably flawed to a degree. It's hard for me to understand that how such a large constellation of problematic studies, um, <laughs> came together around this. And, uh, so there are issues of data fabrication mm. with, uh, some of the core studies, um, in other ones there, I mean, there's so many different ways that a study can be misleading. The data, data fabrication is maybe sort of the strongest and the most problematic. And I, I believe some of the BBC article was about that, but I don't remember the exact article. Um, there, the, the, the there are other studies that, uh, are just the statistics are not done well, either because the sample mm. sizes are problematic or if they're meta-analyses they've gone and they've thrown out certain, um, you know, they've kind of, kind of selectively picked the studies they wanted, or they've included in the meta-analysis papers that we know, know are fraudulent, yeah. um, things like that. So, you know, my sense of around all of this, and again, I'm not, I'm not an expert, so I don't want to, I don't want to, um, you know, put myself out there as one and say, oh, trust me. Um, yeah. but my sense is that the, is, is that the science behind ivermectin, um, when properly conducted tends to show no benefit, um, and that the studies that show benefits are, are not, um, have not been properly conducted, but I, yeah. you know, again, um, you know, you need to talk to, uh, you know, Gideon Katzmeyerwitz or someone, uh, uh, someone like that, uh, who's really done the deep dive to get a, to get a detailed. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think even just, you know, for the average person, just learning about the, the issues with some of the studies too, yeah. you know, like that's, you know, because as you were talking about the number of people who've been vaccinated, like that's a pretty decent sa sample size. And, you know, and people are talking about the long-term effects and that's something I'm always wondering too. And I'm like, coming up on almost a year since people got started getting vaccinated, how long do you want, <laughs> do you want to right, check right. these Right, right. I mean, facts? you know, these are always things you have to, you know, these are things you have to think about. These are things that, that, uh, uh, we do spend a lot of time thinking about in the public health community and yeah. figuring out, you know, how can we monitor this? 
another part of it, you know, that, that I think where there's, there's a very strong emphasis on the importance of doing randomized controlled trials, mm. which are very, very important. The other thing that people don't talk about as much is that, uh, of course, why do we, uh, you know, we, we also rely on a very broad framework of mechanistic understanding of the, of the immunology, of the vaccinology, of the way our, of the biology of these various treatments. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, if you have a very deep detailed understanding of say how the immune system responds to the presence of a, um, you know, a stabilized spike protein yeah, in, um, in, in the tissue, um, that, you know, we, that allows us to generalize and make better predictions about what we expect to happen in the longer term, even prior to being able to conduct, uh, you know, we could, we could say, oh yeah, we're not going to give anyone the vaccine until we've done a 10 year randomized control trial. Um, but you know, instead in this case, we have chosen to, well, this is really bad disease. We're going to be able to save a lot of deaths by doing this. We've got a lot of experience with vaccines. We've got a bit of experience with mRNA vaccines. We've got a very good understanding of the biology of what an mRNA vaccine does. So we know that there aren't any particular reasons to expect that an mRNA vaccine would be especially dangerous. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, and so, you know, in that case, you've got this really broad kind of mechanistic foundation. Yeah. You think something like ivermectin and you don't really have a mechanism. You don't have a good story for why this would work. Um, you just have, uh, you know, some randomly controlled trials with inadequate sub sample sizes or cut and pasted duplicate entries in the, in the Excel yeah. sheets or whatever. Yeah. So. Yeah. It's, it's really interesting. I, yeah, I, I, I just think about like how people are making their decisions. Like you, like you explained, yeah. like these are things that have been, you know, we have like a, a decent amount of things that kind of cross over until we have a decent understanding, but, um, you know, I, I want to save this last chunk of time to ask what I feel is my most important question. Okay. All right. So here's, here's the, so you talk about things like in the book, you talk about like selection bias and some yep. other issues, right. And, uh, I, I love the section on data visualization too. I learned so much from that. I look oh, at great. every, I look at every graph and chart now, just so skeptically. Uh, but any, anyways, my main question, I out of all things, like I'm skeptical of like everything supernatural and aliens, yeah, like something that falls into that category too is polling data. All right. Like I don't trust a single poll. I look at it and I look at sample sizes, like, especially when you get into politics and stuff, I'm like, you, you pulled 2000 people and I'm supposed to assume that it's like three, you know, that's, that's the, you know, th- these are the separations of 330 million people. Right. But, you yeah. know, I get it. Like somebody was explaining to me how they try to like, uh, you know, get different age groups and categories to kind of balance it. But even when I look at that, I'm like, I still think it's BS. So maybe you can help me understand, like, are there any polls that we should be trusting or looking at? Like, I don't believe a single one that I see. Well, I'm not a polling expert either. So I'll just, I'll be transparent about that. And I, I, that's one thing that's kind of important for people to do. Yeah. To see, I, I'm doing that. And it, it's important to say what you Absolutely. do and don't know rather than just be like, oh yeah, I'll tell you everything you need to know about polling. That's Here bullshitting, we go. right? It, that's bullshit. <laughs> so, so I'm not an expert on polling. I mean, I think, I think that, um, you know, you've, you've pointed out what you're saying is exactly right. Polling is extremely difficult. Um, it's always been difficult. You know, the, uh, the, I, I don't remember if the story is in the book, but, um, um, you know, but the, uh, the, Gallup poll was, was developed because people were, um, let's see what, how was, how were they, how were they polling? Um, I think they were polling subscriber, the original polling had been polling subscribers to magazines or something like this that had been, and so so the original polling, had had this sort of strong sampling bias in it. And then they came up with those alternative methodology that, that did a better job getting over the sampling bias. It may have been, they were using landlines back when there weren't so many men. Let's get, I don't remember the story, but it's, um, but the idea is, you know, so right from the start, like, I mean, the reason Gallup took off was because they found a way to eliminate some of the selection bias. Problem is, is, is that, um, you know, we're, we keep getting news, you know, so for example, if I call, if I call landlines right now, um, I don't even to have do my one. polling, right? <laughs> like who's got, a, who's got a landline? It's a very biased set of people, you know, it's, no. it's, um, you know, you're probably older, you're, you know, you're, um, probably wealthier, et cetera, et cetera. If you've actually got a landline, um. And, uh, and so then that'll give you kind of a misleading picture. So we're constantly trying to, but then, then there's these issues like who the hell picks up the phone when they get a random, 
call. Or mm-hmm. if I do pick up the phone and someone says, you know, I'm calling from a poll, I just hang up. And uh, so who the hell answers somebody when they're calling for, from a poll? And, mm-hmm. and so it's like, um, all of these things introduce these selection biases in terms of like what sample you're getting and all, you know, so much of like sort of modern polling theory is trying to figure out how to minimize these selection mm-hmm. biases and to, and to create broad samples and to either, you know, equally sample from different district, from different, you know, demographic groups, or to recognize that your sample is going to be biased. You're going to have more people in one group than another. Um, and then correct that with statistical methods. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, but it's, it's an art, you know, like a lot of things are, and, and, and it, it sometimes works well and sometimes doesn't, you don't always know, um, because the sort of social landscape of how easy it is to reach people and get their opinions, uh, you don't always know, um, until it's too late when, when you've been doing a fairly poor job of that. Um, then there are all these other issues, you know, like, uh, you know, um, that people talk about, you know, maybe people don't necessarily tell polls, even anonymous pollsters, they don't necessarily tell them the truth, mm. um, because we're used to caring about what people think about us. Exactly. And so we, so we may, you know, we may say one thing and have done something else. And, um, you know, that even on exit polling, that could be a problem. You'd think that exit polling would be pretty safe because you're getting a random sample, presumably, or a nearly mm. random sample of people coming out of the building who've just voted, but, uh, but it turns out people don't necessarily say the truth on exit polls. And, yeah. and so there are all of these complications. The bottom line is, I think, you know, the polls, um, the polls are face systematic error and the error is usually correlated across polls as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so if one poll is, you know, if there's some factor that people aren't understanding, you know, maybe uh, people are, people lie and say they voted for Hillary when actually they voted for Trump or mm-hmm. something like that, um, that poll, that problem that people haven't anticipated is going to sort of be affecting almost all the polls. And so you're going to have mm-hmm. like a whole bunch of polls and they're going to also be saying approximately the same thing. And they're going to have these confidence intervals, but the confidence intervals are the confidence intervals that the polls are displaying usually have to do with the uncertainty in the data that they've actually, uh, collected, not the uncertainty around the methodology in the first mm-hmm. place. And yeah. so the confidence intervals may be too low. I mean, obviously there's, you know, there are people that are trying to correct this in polling as well. Um, uh, but it's just, it's just an extraordinarily hard problem, I think. And, and yeah. so, you know, polls can be kind of an interesting indicator of things, but I don't think that we can, um, rely on them to the degree that people often do. Yeah. It, it really seems like, you know, just when I think about even this conspiracy theorists or anything like, uh, just it's human nature to want to want to have some kind of certainty. And I think that's a big issue with people understanding science because they don't want like uncertainty. They, they want right. someone to say, this is what's happening. This is, you know, a hundred percent. But I, I, I think people look at polls and it gives them this idea like, oh, this many people support my candidate or that candidate. Right. Because there's always like a little disclaimer at the bottom. And it says like, you know, yep. the potential like uh, error and everything like that. I'm like, how many people read that? How many people look yeah, at and, that? And, and, and even those tend to be small. Uh, it's, they tend <laughs> to be too small because they include certain kinds of error, the statistical error based on the sampling. And they don't tend to include kind of um, systematic error in the, in, in the kinds of selection bias and the methodologies that are being used. Yeah. So. Um, yeah, you're right. And people don't read that either. And so, um, you know, there may be a poll that says it's, you know, it's 53, 47 for my candidate, but down below it says, you know, margin error is six percentage points. So, yeah. and you actually, you know, that, that's not really telling you all that yeah. much, right? So, so let me, let me ask you this, Carl, like not as, not as like, you know, the professor or researcher or anything, when you see polls, just call the guy. Yeah. Yeah. How much weight do you put into it? Like, do you just like, kind of like, does it just go in one ear out the other or do you infer anything? Have you made it like, do you make any like decisions? Like, like, I guess I'm asking for myself, like, yeah, right, benefit, right. like for somebody as skeptical as I am to like any kind of poll, whether it's political I mean, or anything. I, I, I probably, you know, I certainly like, you know, I, in some elections I've gotten really kind of, you know, hooked on following the poll numbers and yeah. watching them go up and down. And I think the way I kind of view it is a bit like, uh, when you're watching the world series games and, you know, mm. you've got your team and, uh, and your, your, your team is up, uh, four to three in the, in the fifth. And, uh, and that's a good sign. It's mm. better than being down four to three. And, and, mm-hmm. uh, um, but you know that anything can happen in the sixth, seventh, eighth, the yeah. ninth. 
And um, so, like, I mean, in the baseball game, you know, it's a the baseball name. You actually know what the score is. You just don't know what's going to happen next. But I think it's that same kind of, mm. it's that, it's that say, I look at it with that same kind of like, you know, gosh, I hope, gosh, I hope um, that I do when I'm watching a baseball game that I care about. But it's, uh, um, but keeping in mind that, you know, anything can happen and, yeah. uh, um, and, and it ain't over till it's over. And yeah. So, yeah. No, I, think I don't that's, know. That, and that's not a perfect answer, but I think no, that's, I, I think that's a great way to look at it. Just, you know, almost, almost like somewhat entertainment, you know, I remember just people giving Nate Silver so much crap about, uh, Trump winning and everything. And like, you know, even if you give him like a 10% chance of winning or 5% chance, that's 5%. Like, okay, well, it fell in that. And I, maybe it's cause I'm, in, I'm from Las Vegas and I hear a lot about oh, like, yeah, right. odds yeah. and stuff, you know, it's like, Hey, there's, you know, there's still a chance. You know, since we're, since we're talking about polling, I've kind of tangled with Nate a bit over COVID, but he, he, he did very well and, and innovated in a lot of the things we we're talking about in, in polling and a and he figured out a bunch of ways to get rid of errors that were trapping, tripping mm. up other people. And, um, you know, uh, it, a, a, a proper, you know, predictive model coming out of polling or something like that, uh, doesn't always put the highest probability on the candidate that wins. Uh, you know, if, mm -hmm. if my model says 80, 20, um, that, uh, one candidate wins, um, that it shouldn't be that that 80, 20 candidate wins 10 times out of 10. It should be, it should be that they win eight times out of 10. So, mm. you know, the people crapping on Nate because, um, he gave Trump a, uh, not majority chance of winning and Trump won that they're just not understanding the probability. Yeah. So. So you won't get me defending Nate a lot, but, but there you go. You, you got it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, when he, well, it, 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 when he, you know, he's good at what he, uh, he's good at what he, what he became famous for doing. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I, I, I just like, I like learning too about just like the noise and just being aware of these things and probabilities. Yeah. And I've always just thinking about like, how do we, how do we get this to the public? So people care about this stuff and no, just so when they're coming across data, because we come across this stuff every day, whether it's studies or data or anything. That's why I love the book so much. So thank yeah, you. Yeah, I guess, I guess that's a good, a good place to kind of wrap it up too. So like the book is out, it's been out for a while. So, uh, yeah, like where can people find you and are you working on anything? Do you have any upcoming books, Carl? Cause I need, Oh more. yeah. So, um, I mean the, you know, the follow what I'm up to on Twitter, CT underscore Bergstrom on Twitter. Um, I pretty, pretty active there. And, um, I do not have a, I mean, I'm, I'm working on a review. I have an evolution textbook. I'm revising that right now, which <laughs> is kind of getting in the way of, um, coming up with a third edition, kind of getting in the way of any kind of popular book writing ambitions. Mm. Um, but, uh, yeah, still trying to figure out what the next book should be about because I had fun writing this one and, and, um, people seem to have enjoyed it. So, uh, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's funny. Like I said, I'm, I'm reading it for a second time and it's just as relevant, uh, you know, I'm able to apply it yeah. to stuff now from when it first came out. So yeah, I love it. So that's great. Yeah. Carl, I know you're a busy guy. I appreciate you coming on and yeah, whenever that new book comes out, we'll do this again. Awesome. Well, great. Great talking to you. And thanks for your time. All right, everybody. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Carl. I had a blast talking with him and picking his brain about how we can, you know, be better about looking at science and uh, being skeptical of some of the information that comes across, you know, us on a daily basis. So I really hope you enjoyed that conversation. Make sure you head down to the description, follow Carl, follow, follow Jevin over on Twitter. And again, make sure you grab a copy of this book. It is such an important book. All of it's linked down in the description below. Buy an extra copy of Calling Bullshit. Give it to your friends, give it to your family members. So hopefully when they get information about, you know, vaccines or the spread of coronavirus or anything else, whether it's climate change or anything, fake news, misinformation, this book is so damn helpful. Make sure you read it, get a copy for someone you know, all right? But also make sure if you're new, follow the podcast or subscribe, whether you're on Apple or Spotify or anything like that so you don't miss any upcoming episodes. And a really simple way to support the podcast, really, really easy way to support the podcast is share this episode. If you think that this conversation was important that people you know might enjoy, share this episode. Uh, if you share it on Instagram or Twitter or even Facebook, 
tag me in it. All right. I love to see when you guys are sharing this and spreading these conversations, but any other episode that you like, share it as well. Okay. That really helps out. And another thing that helps is if you head over to Apple podcast and leave a quick little rating and review that helps a lot with the algorithms and getting the word out. All right. But other than that, make sure you're following me on Instagram and Twitter at the rewired soul. If you're not yet. And if you are interested, there is also an affiliate link down below for better help online therapy. Mental health is a huge part of my life. And, you know, speaking of mental health, uh, books like uh, Carl and Jevin's book have helped me make better mental health decisions and understand some of the research around different therapies, medications I take and all that. But when I work with my therapist through better help, I'm able to use evidence-based therapies that I know have been vetted and tested and everything like that. So if you're interested in improving your mental health, check out that affiliate link for better help online therapy down below. All right. So another huge thanks to Carl for coming on. Make sure you follow him and Jevin, grab a copy of their book. For all of you, have an amazing rest of your day and I'll have a new episode for you up on Wednesday. So I'll talk to you then.